Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 52 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan and they're going to give you $100 off. So do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show where every week we're helping you create more extraordinary life and business. And this week's so exceptional, we have Jen Gresham on the show. I'm so excited to have Jen on the show. She is one of my favorite people. She is so smart, so insightful. And how's this for a mouthful? Jen is the former assistant scientist of the human performance wing of the US Air Force. There you go, I got it right. And she's now creating moonshots for herself and she's creating moonshots for other people that are helping us to solve humanity's biggest issues. And we have an amazing conversation about how to solve some of the world's problems, what the causes are, how to go about that, how to create a moonshot for yourself. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And I also reviewed the book Wealth Warrior by Steve Chandler, one of my favorite books. This week, I've just arrived in Melbourne. I'm at the start of an eight-month round-the-world trip. So I'm so excited about that. I love traveling, and this is where I just come alive when I'm on the road. So I started in Melbourne and spent a few days with my business coach this week, which I'm super excited about, and then head off overseas after that. But this week, I wanted to talk to you about service. And if you own a business, or even if you don't, how you can be bringing, being more of service to people in your day-to-day life. So let me ask you this question. How often in a week do you feel served? Do you feel like somebody has just served you and they've served you powerfully just because they wanted to be of service to you? My guess is not that much, not that often. And so if we can start serving people more in our lives and our business, it puts us in very rarefied air. It makes us stand out from the crowd. Of course, most people are looking for what's in it for me? What can I get out of it? How can I benefit? How can I make more money? And service slips our mind. And I was having a really interesting discussion in our Extraordinary Life community this week, which is something that all my clients get to go into. They get to join my Extraordinary Life community and come on our monthly calls and participate in our Facebook group. And we were talking about service. And I realized that almost everybody that I work with started their business because they wanted to be of service to people in some way. So sure, they wanted to have some freedom and make money, but One of the big drivers was because they wanted to give back or do something great for humanity or the planet. And we forget it. When we work in business, there's so much to do in marketing, sales and money and finance. And, you know, it's just easy to forget why we got into business. But I just wanted to represent the whole community to remember that we got in this to give back. And how can you get back into that mindset? How can you get into the mindset of just serving for the sake of serving, not trying to make money, not trying to improve your business, but just to go out there and serve people to go and just make somebody's day to help them in some way so that they feel served. And we all realized as we were in the discussion that actually the more that we come from service and the more that we just serve people and do what we love, the easier and more fun and enjoyable everything becomes. It doesn't feel like this drudgery of having to drum up new business all the time. And I guarantee you that the more you come from service in your business, the more that 
everything is going to come back to you tenfold, be it money or clients or whatever. The more you focus on just serving people and helping people and giving your gift, then the more business you're going to generate, guaranteed. The book review. And this week I'm reviewing the book Wealth Warrior by Steve Chandler. Steve is a incredibly prolific writer. I think he's written 30 or 40 books. And a lot of people recommended this book to me about creating wealth, making money, you know, growing a successful business. And so I knew I had to read it and I wasn't disappointed. Steve is an incredibly funny guy and he's been through a lot of crazy trials and tribulations throughout his life. Uh, He had two alcoholic parents. Uh, His wife became sick, so he had to raise his four children on his own. And he just brings a lot of humor to those situations about how he battles through life and how he eventually, you know, turned his life around to become a very wealthy man. And he talks about the idea of becoming a wealth warrior. So the idea of being a warrior, of uh, taking control, of getting rid of everything that is non-essential, about going at wealth like a warrior would. And there's a lot of stuff in there about service, about what we were talking about before. Coming from a place of service, the idea is to keep giving and giving and giving, not to try and get something as being the way to create wealth. And the quote uh, I'm taking here is, again, like a lot of the topics we've talked about on the show this year are covered in the book Wealth Warrior. Steve you know, writes about them beautifully. And he says, a warrior does not please, a warrior serves. Without a definite purpose guiding me, I would always be sidetracked. I would always have my day guided by other people's feelings instead of my own plan. It would be a day of pleasing people and winning their approval. And that was always at the heart of it. It isn't that Facebook or LinkedIn or email or tweets or texts are a waste of time. They're not, all by themselves, a waste of time. When people believe that they are, they're confusing the map with the territory. They're trying to kill the messenger. The real addiction is not to social media or the internet or to tweets and texts and emails. The real addiction is to getting other people to like me and to approve of me. So fantastic book by Steve. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't mince words. He talks about exactly what you need to do to start living more on purpose and actually create some wealth. So go and check it out. Wealth Warrior by Steve Chandler. And I'm so excited to introduce my next guest. As I said, Jen Gresham came from the US Air Force, the human performance wing, and has so much fascinating information from that time of her life to share with us and also about how you can create your moonshot. She also happens to be the first woman to ever feature on the Nathan Seward show. So without further ado, please enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Jean Gresham. I got into the Air Force because I grew up in a abusive house and kind of a nightmare situation really. And I had gotten to a point my, with my dad where he'd sort of said, you know, either you do what I say or I won't pay for college. And yeah. you do what I say was like everything, you know, it was almost like, you know, you eat what I tell you to eat for dinner or I won't pay for college. I mean, it was just super constant. controlling. And so I realized at that point, like, wow, I'm not going to have any life as long as he has that lover. And ironically, though, he was really cheap. And so he was the one who introduced me to the Air Force Academy. I knew nothing about it. For being a relatively smart person, I think I spent so little time, almost no time thinking about what college I wanted to go to or what would be a good fit or could I get a scholarship? Like I I just had no clue. And so he introduced the Academy to me. And as soon as I found out that they paid for everything, 
like your, your family had to write a check for $500 when you entered to give you a computer. And that was it. Wow. And they paid you a salary while you were there. Wow. Really small. I mean, it was like enough to buy ramen noodles in the store, you know. But when I heard that, I was like, that's it. I'm applying to the Air Force Academy, West Point, and Annapolis. And those were the only three schools I applied to. Well, were you quite academic at high school? Like you weren't aware of scholarships and college and stuff, but were you quite academic? I was. So I was valedictorian in my high school, you know, had done a bunch of enrichment programs, you know, every summer I'd gone to the local college and taken some classes and things like that. Yeah. So I, I mean, actually, I've never really thought about the fact that I did not do any research outside of the academies. And even then, if someone hadn't told me about them, I just would have been screwed. Uh, yeah, I'm assuming like valedictorian, you would be, I don't know the US system that well, but Harvard or Yale or... Yeah, no. I, didn't, I didn't apply to any of those. And I, and I think, again, there was that assumption in my mind, like that's just not possible right. without my dad controlling the purse strings. Mm-hmm. So that just wasn't, was, well, wasn't going to happen. And I think, you know, I don't, I don't know that I ever thought about like, what am I going to do if I don't get in? I mean, it's really difficult to get into the Air Force Academy, even though the caliber of student by and large is not the same as it is for a Harvard or a Yale. Like you have to get an appointment from your congressman or senator and they only have 10 slots at a time. So like they can only have 10 people there. So if they have 10 people there, like they don't have any openings, you're out of luck. So it was things like that. I just hadn't really thought through the consequences of these decisions, but it all worked out, obviously. I went to the Air Force Academy. And how are you, 17, 18? Yeah, I was 18. I got into all three, but I had done a summer program at the Air Force Academy and loved it. So I grew up in Florida mm-hmm. and I got to Colorado Springs and saw mountains really for the first time in my life. And I was like, it's like I've this been missing mountains. Like, amazing. <laughs> like, how? No one told me that the earth can move like this, right? Because everything's so flat in Florida. Yeah. And uh, so I was just totally smitten with it. And, and again, it's not like I went to West Point or Annapolis to check them out too. Like, no, it was just, no, I love the good. Air Force Academy. That, that'll work. And it was. It was great. I had a great time there. I loved my experience there. And yeah, How was um, the transition from being in this really controlling environment? I guess the military is pretty controlling in its own way, isn't it? You would think so, but... For me, it was like a breath of fresh air. So actually, my nickname was Cadet Happy Camper because I was so happy <laughs> all the time. I was just like, it's a party! Yeah. Just full freedom. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it was freedom. And I think it was probably a really good transition. I don't know how I would have dealt with complete freedom. Um, mm. So I think it was actually really a nice rampway into real world life and making decisions for myself. I think the other piece of it was that, you know, other people were like getting yelled at for the first time in their life. And I was like, you guys have no idea how to be scary. Like this, you're going to have to amp it up. And so, you know, we'd have these training sessions where we'd all be, you know, at attention, lined up, you know, people screaming in your face. And I'd be laughing. I was just like, this is hilarious. Like, this is it. And so it was just a great place for me. And it was fun. I had a great time. And where does it, because it's, it's a college per se, so you, you do like a whole lot of academic stuff and then you get sent off into a division of the Air Force, is that how it works? When you graduate, yeah. So when you graduate, you'll, um, you go into a specialty, you get a career field and you go off. And it's, so it's nice, right? So you have a guaranteed job. So nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 
And you do military stuff while you're there. So you, you know, do survival training and some people, you know, jump out of planes and get their jump badges and get their wings. So things like that. And you end up going into where from there? Yeah. So I ended up becoming a scientist. And this was really interesting because I really was torn when I was a freshman if I wanted to be a scientist or an English major. And uh, because I'd done both of those tracks really my whole life. So I'd you know, done science camps forever, but I'd been writing poetry forever. I was a writer and a reader. And I sort of thought, well, if I ever get out of the military, because I didn't really plan on making the military career. But most people were shocked. Didn't that plan I on anything, really. <laughs> I clearly, I had no plans. Um, but most people were shocked that I went to the military because I was kind of a hippie. And mm. if it's not obvious, like a happy-go-lucky person, they're like, oh, my God, they're going to eat you alive. And so, yeah, I didn't really think I'd stay. And so I thought, well, when I get out of the military, a science degree will probably pay me better than an English degree, and I can always write on the side. But my dad, when I told him, I was like, because he had a big interest in science and technology and that kind of thing. And so I thought he was going to be all proud of me when I told him I declared chemistry. And so he left um, magazines like Scientific American around the house over Christmas break my freshman year. And at the end of it, he said, it's a big mistake to declare chemistry as your major because you don't have a fire in the belly for science. And then he told me of this little experiment that he'd done, you know, and he's like, I left these magazines around and you never pick them up. And I was like, it's Christmas break, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he was right. And, and of course, you know, but because of our relationship, all it did was solidify in my mind that I absolutely wanted to be a scientist and I could be nothing other than a scientist. Just to prove him wrong. Right. I was like, I will totally show you that I have fire in the belly. And so I got my degree in chemistry. I was really lucky. Um, I was not the top chemistry major. Um, the academy was humbling for me because mm. I went from being valedictorian to kind of being middle of my class. I had a great time though. So I argued that I had more fun than the people who were ahead of me, but still it was a humbling experience. Right. Yeah, so then at the last minute, a slot for grad school opened up. So the Air Force sent me to get my master's. And ultimately, I got a slot for a PhD, which they paid for. Amazing. Amazing. But then you have to do the whole degree in half the time that a normal grad student takes. And that's helped by them paying for it. But it's still really fast. And it was one of the more stressful things I've ever done in my life. Yeah, a bit. So to me, it really proved that I had that fire in the belly because I was able to do it. And I liked my jobs well enough. So the thing about the Air Force that I love is that they have this belief that almost anyone can do almost anything. Mm. So, That's powerful. Yeah, it's really powerful. So my very first job out of my master's degree, so I got a master's degree in biochemistry, right? I'm looking at, you know, DNA changes and understanding proteins and, you know, that kind of stuff in, in bacteria. And my first assignment was in a nuclear physics lab. And I got there and I said, are there bacteria anywhere in this building? <laughs> and they Wait, said, no. maybe on the walls. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And so they sent me to a meeting the first day. They said, look, we just need you to take notes. We don't need you to participate in any way. Just tell us what happens. And I came back in tears because 
I had no idea what the topic of the meeting was. Like I couldn't take notes because I didn't understand. Couldn't decipher it. It was like going to a meeting in another language. And so I had three years there. And at the end of it, like I could, I could talk about that work and I often had to present it, you know? And, and so it was really empowering. It was that first taste of, I just got dumped in this thing that I had no knowledge of. And I taught myself enough and surrounded myself with people who knew more than I did in a way that allowed me to be effective. And then I had to do that again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So you know, I taught college chemistry back at the academy. I managed a program in space lubricants, like, you know, lubricants for satellites so that they deploy properly. So cool. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I remember when they told me the program I was going to manage, and I've never heard the word. It's tribology. In case, that'll be like a separate <laughs> question someday. Yeah, it will be. Friction and wear is tribology. So that was my career, and I grew to love that aspect of it because we changed jobs every three to four years. So it was always something different, and you were always learning something new. And I felt like it really expanded my knowledge in different ways. It wasn't just scientific, right? You're learning about management and communications and all of these other things that are really useful in life. And so my final job there was as the assistant chief scientist for the human performance wing for the U.S. Air Force. And um, yeah, I got there uh, because I happened to know the chief scientist and they needed somebody and I wanted to do something different. It sounds like, so your your story has been one of just adversity or challenging circumstances and then just stepping up each time over and over and over again. Over and over, yeah. Yeah, which makes sense who I know you are now. Yeah, and I think it's... um, not only being willing to do that, but learning to love that. And, and so in some ways, right, I have to really thank my dad for the childhood that I had mm. because I think that's where I learned that skill. Did it take you a while to feel that? To feel thankful? That sort of gratitude for your dad after, because on paper it's not the most fun upbringing. Yeah, I mean, one aspect of all of this is that I ended my relationship with my father I don't know, a few years after I graduated from the academy. So most of that career, we were not in touch. Mm. And then when he died, I had to deal with all of those emotions. And I really came to, to feel like, you know what? He did the best he could. And um, he loved me. And I know he loved me. And he was just a really difficult man with his own demons. Mm. And I could still love him back, even though that was true. So he felt like he was doing doing the best he could. He wasn't mean. Right. It, was, it was his way of showing love. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he had any other tools at his disposal. And he'd had a pretty hard life himself. And so, yeah, that was a, it was a really nice place to get to. I'm sorry that he had to die for that to happen. Mm. But on the other hand, I don't think he was really capable of a healthy relationship. And so yeah. it was acknowledging that, you know, the separation was probably best for me. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of peace around it now. Yeah. And in terms of the Air Force, like I'm interested in the human performance wing, but half the people listening and watching this are from New Zealand and we have, I think there's 14 people in the military, so (laughs) maybe slightly more. But is there a way you can give us some scale? Because obviously biggest military in the world, but is there a way that you can kind of make that real for us and where you were working? I was going to say, no. No. <laughs> Only because this is exactly the thing I'm not good at, which is these kind of detailed yeah. questions. Like, I haven't 
the foggiest clue how many people are in the U.S. military. <laughs> More than 14. More than 14 for sure. Yeah, this is why. When, you, when you're talking about um, Air Force academies and degrees and PhDs and changing jobs, like this is so beyond what I know our military to be that there will be so many opportunities. And Yeah. So at least at the academy, I can, that's one piece of trivia I know. Yeah. Each class is roughly 1,000 people. Yeah. So it's relatively small, right? So you have 4,000 uh, cadets who are there. And then, you know, we all get sorted into our various career fields the scientific career field's really small, really small. I'm just going to take a wag here and say it's like 1%, like active duty is 1% of the force uh, mm. in the scientific career field. Maybe it's, you know, three or five. I don't know. But it's somewhere in the single digits. <laughs> right. Um, which meant for promotion purposes, it was really not a good choice. You have to wait for someone to die to get a promotion kind of thing. There's really no pathway. I mean, I mean, and that's changing now to some degree. But when I was in, nobody, nobody even thought they were going to make colonel, which is sort of like the highest officer rank up until you, before you become a general. But that didn't happen. Now, my husband ended up doing that. And so, you know, he's kind of a god in the household. But <laughs> yeah, and, and so again, talk about another ego blow. I'm, you know me to be fairly ambitious and it was just acknowledging like, that's just not going to happen for me. And I'm okay with that because mm. <laughs> gosh, darn it, I have the fire in the belly for science <laughs> and this is the pathway I need to be on. So. And human performance, oh, you know, apart from the name, what does that involve in the Air Force? Yeah. So what were you working on? So we looked at everything. We used to say we looked at everything from biology to psychology to technology, but it also so included cool. medicine. So we, when I was there, we were incorporating the medical research unit as well. So it was, the breadth was ginormous. I mean, it was mm. really dizzying. And one of the hard things that we had to figure out was like, given that kind of breadth um, in discipline and expertise, where do we spend our time? And so some of that would be what you might consider fairly mundane, you know, like understanding how sound is transmitted through the skull, for example. And how do we help people who are on the flight line who might have earphones on hear what they need to hear, but not damage their hearing? So we had some of the best experts in um, hearing and sound transmission through the body. So yeah, because a lot of these, a lot of stuff, you, technology you see has either come from NASA or the military in some way. It's, yeah, most people have no idea how many of the just world-altering things came from the Department of Defense. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and, and we do it not only in-house, but we also do a significant amount of grant-making outside of um, the DOD to academic universities. So, I, again... No trivia here, but there's a large percentage of their grant money comes from the DOD. And again, most people don't know that. So when I hear people saying like, yeah, let's whack the DOD's budget, it's like, you may not understand all the things that are wrapped up in there that you directly benefit from. Yeah, there's and a lot of research money and stuff. It's a ton. And, you know, the Air Force was, I mean, I'm totally biased, but <laughs> in my mind, we really were sort of the technological leaders in the DOD. Ah, so interesting. So what was the actual mandate for the department? So like I said, it was somewhat broad, but it, it was... specific. It was just like find some solutions in these areas. 
Yeah, we had a mission statement and I won't remember it. But <laughs> <laughs> like all mission statements. Details. Yeah. But generally speaking, right, it was, well, how do we take the performance that's already good, right? People already got an incredibly adept, high-performing force. But how do we increase that? And how do we also, as technology becomes bigger and bigger, how do we incorporate the human in those design considerations? So we worked very heavily with um, the people in the acquisition cycles. So, you know, the person who is developing the next fighter jet would want to work with us and talk about like, what do we need to consider from the human perspective? And that was actually a big deal while I was there. And I completely 100% credit my boss and his boss, who were really the visionaries in that area, and who got the Air Force and the DoD back on board with that way of thinking, because it hadn't been, right? It was, let's go develop this piece of technology, but we won't think about the users. This is far beyond, you know, like user design. It's really thinking about how does the machine and the human communicate with each other to enhance performance. And so Mm, it's ergonomics, and certainly we did a lot of that, but it's even beyond that, right? And this, this is what now you can see the path into what I'm doing in my moonshot is how to really leverage technology to enhance human performance in ways that we typically haven't thought about. So you can almost start to think of technology as a kind of orthotic, right? So in the way that eyeglasses are an ocular orthotic, right? And writing is a memory orthotic, but now technology can be performance-enhancing orthotics in many different arenas, that's really interesting. And so we played around a lot with that, both at the individual and the group level. What's your most memorable project or solution? Oh my goodness. You know, one of the things I loved that we were doing was research on trust. And it was really trying to, I mean, this was again, um, more basic research, but what makes individuals and teams trust one another? How do you enhance the trust-making process and how do you disrupt it? Because as a military, we would be interested in both. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Both yeah. And, and then there was sort of the, I mean, and again, this, these were all clues. If I, if I had only paid attention at the time, right, all the things that I found most interesting became very important for me later as a coach. But there was um, also a lot of cognitive science work that we were doing and looking at decision-making processes. So we looked at naturalistic decision-making, which most people would call intuitive decision-making. So when do you trust your gut and when do you ignore it? And there's a lot of people, right? I see so much out there like, always trust your gut. And it's like, no, actually you shouldn't. And that's not what the research says. And there's some really deep work on that. And so for example- That would be fascinating. Research. Yeah, it was so cool, right? And, and I got to work with all of the best scientists in the world on these different topics. Mm. So like, if you're curious, yeah, when should you, you, should trust only, your gut? you should only trust your gut when you're operating in a situation where you have extensive experience and knowledge. Mm. Because what that intuitive decision-making is, is pattern matching, Right, so um, this work started uh, looking at how firemen look at what to do in that situation. And what they found, right, is like firemen aren't running through pros and cons in their heads. <laughs> well, if I, you know, break this window, though, this will happen. Yeah, it's all unconscious. It's all unconscious. But what's happening there is pattern matching. 
And, and again, that's happening subconsciously. So subconsciously, they're saying, I've been in a house like this before, and here's what happened, and so therefore I should do this. Mm. Without that depth of experience, your gut is completely making shit up. I mean, it's just... Just completely random. Right, because your brain loves pattern matching, so it will try to find a pattern whether it's there or not. It isn't the, I mean, the gut, I don't know what the definition of the gut is and intuition or whatever. It's for survival at the base level, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there and may sometimes be it's other- good to go through danger. Like sometimes it's not good to listen to that. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of, um, I mean, we looked at this too, right? So what's the nature of the bacterial system? I finally got back to the bacteria. Um, you know, what's, what's <laughs> yes, the role of the bacteria in the gut, you know, and how they communicate signals back to the brain? We don't really understand that. Mm. Um, but it's clear that there is a pathway from the literal gut. The to actual the gut. Wow. Right. So cool. And and it is definitely in symbiosis with the bacterial system. So what's really interesting, for example, is that cognitive power is related to the bacteria in your gut. So lack of bacteria, lack of cognitive power. Or the wrong mix of bacteria, right? And mm. so that's why there's some really interesting work going on in terms of sampling different um, communities of gut bacteria in different places around the world and understanding how does this correlate to cognitive health. Mm. The pattern recognition, I, you know, as a pilot, that's very present for me because, you know, so much repetition in flying, obviously, so you do learn to trust your gut. And yeah. it's one of those things that someone taught me once that if you're feeling, you know, if your gut's telling you something's not right, even if you can't tell what it is, say it out loud. Just say, hey, something doesn't feel right here. Yeah. And now that makes much more sense to me as there's a pattern, there's something being sensed that's out of place. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. So, you know, I was only there for a year. Um, so what happened there, I loved it. Like I loved my boss. I cannot say enough good things about him. And I loved the unit and what we were doing. And I couldn't take the bureaucracy another day. It just, you know, 16 years of cumulative bureaucracy for a fairly free spirit and frankly, a, a fairly goofy woman you know, wearing a uniform and trying to look all professional all the time. It just was stifling. Mm. And it was a hard break in a way, you know. And, and so when I left the military, which I was giddy to do, even though I was four years short of retirement. So for those 14 people in New Zealand who might be watching, in the military in the U.S., so there's a system where you do 20 years in the military and then you get half your pay for the rest of your life when you retire. If you do anything short of 20 years, you get nothing. And so when I decided to leave at 16 years, you know, people were just like, What are you doing? Four more with years. You? Yeah. You're crazy. And it was at that moment, right? I, my husband and I were going through infertility treatment. We'd lost a number of babies. And it was like the preciousness of life was so present for me in that moment. And I was like, four years is a long time. Yeah, for what, half a salary of whatever. Yeah, like I, it just wasn't worth it. That trade-off anymore wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. As is typical for me, I had no plan, no idea what I was going to do when I got out. I just made the decision to get out. I love that about you, though, because so many people never make those decisions. But it sounds like, again, trust your gut and probably some rational argument and just jump. You'll figure it out. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, there were certainly times that I was scared out of my mind and, you know, we thought we knew what was going to happen for us, but in the military, you really never do. So we thought we were going to stay in, in the same place where I got out in, in Dayton, Ohio. And then my husband got reassigned. And then our renter in Washington, D.C. stopped paying her rent. And so I got out just as we ended up with three house payments on a single salary. Wow. So I was like, oh, you know, so scary. And so I took a contracting... Kind of also continuing the theme of your life. Yeah, right, right, it's like, this would be the time. Step up, another challenge. Exactly, and so I I took a contracting position with my old unit and with my former boss, and that, it was so funny. Now 100 people are about to learn about it. Oh my God. So (laughs) originally, um, they hired me in a contracting role to continue doing what I was doing, really, you know, to sort of help with some of the transitions that we were doing with the the unit uh, from a personnel management, organizational development perspective, and, and scientific as well. And I went to the, I flew back to Dayton because by this time we'd moved to Alabama. I flew back and we had our first meeting and I wrote down all the things they wanted me to do. And I'm on the airplane and I'm reading Chris Gillibo's book, um, The Art of Nonconformity, which seemed like such a perfect book to be reading as I've just gotten out of the military, right? Like I can finally be my nonconformist self, which is what's been aching to break free. Mm. And um, I realized I can't do this. I I can't do this job. Like, I love these people and I cannot do this work. Like, it's just... More of the same. More of the same. There is no opportunity to be a nonconformist doing this work. And so I I called... (laughs) That's why I love my former boss so much. I called him up. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I can't do this. And he was like, all right, what what do you want to do? Right? And I'd never been asked that question before. And I said, I think I want to be a writer. And he said, all right, well, you want to write for us? And I was like, that's an option? And so we created this whole new role for me to write thought leadership articles on the work that the unit was doing. And again, it was really, it really pushed me, right? Because now I couldn't just go to a meeting and, you know, talk about the big picture. I had to get into the details. And so again, it involved a deeper dive. I ended up writing a, a book chapter for like a technical audience. And I was so nervous I was going to screw something up, but it was wonderful. And at the same time, because of that, I started a blog called Everyday Bright. And I was just talking about what I was going through, right? Like, hey, I left the military and I'm a writer now. And that's so cool. Um, Big shift. It was a huge shift. And so then people said to me, hey, can I hire you? And I was like, hire me to do what? And they said, I want to know how to shift careers the way you've done. That just sounds amazing. And I, at first I told people, I don't know anything about that. I can't, I can't help you. Here's the book I read. <laughs> but they kept coming back. And so I finally, at that point, my blog had grown to, I don't know, a thousand people, which was still really good. Like I was super proud of that. And so I sent a message out to the blog audience because I wasn't making any money. I wasn't, I had no intention of ever making any money from the blog. It was just for fun. And I said, hey, a number of you have asked me about this. Um, 
I don't know that I know anything about it. It's an experiment, right? I'm a scientist. This is an experiment. So if you'd like to be a test subject, if you'd like to go in this pilot program, I'll take 10 people and I'll design something around you and we'll see if it works. And that sold out in 24 hours. Awesome. It was so amazing. I couldn't believe it. Which ended up being good and bad because it was good in that I did in fact design a course for career changers and the whole issue that I had faced that I wanted to help people with is how do you know what you want to do, right? If you're the person who's talented enough and curious enough to do almost anything, right? If you have a plethora of opportunities, how the heck do you choose? Mm -hmm. That to me was an interesting question. And so that's the course I designed. But because of that initial success... I thought, yeah, I'm going to get into this online marketing thing and this is what I'm going to do. So I actually quit my job with my old unit, writing articles for them to go all in on this and did that for several years. And so I ran hundreds of people through this program and I made almost no money. Like just, it was, I wasn't paying myself like maybe a thousand dollars here or there. And again, talk about humbling. I had to deal with so many identity issues. I remember calling up to get a new credit card, right? It was like for some airline points or whatever. And they said, um, how much money do you make? And I realized at that moment, $1,000 like, here and there. Uh, yeah, I made $1,000. I hung up on them. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I just hung up. And, and there, was, there was so much identity and self-worth caught up in how much money I made and um, my role in the world. And that was another thing that I, it was hard enough to tell people that I had gone from being a scientist to becoming a writer, telling them that I'd become a coach. I could barely get the word out of my mouth. (laughs) It was like so embarrassing. And it's crazy, right? Like what's embarrassing about being a coach? And again, I hadn't even been aware of how I loved to tell people, oh yeah, I'm I'm a PhD biochemist. And people would go, wow, mm. tell people you're a coach and you do not get that. Not reaction. so many wows, yeah. <laughs> not so many wows. You must have gone through this when you left flying. Totally, the exact same thing. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I, I don't know, you don't appreciate it when you, you just assume everybody, when you say, oh, I'm a pilot or whatever, they go, oh, that's interesting. You just assume that everybody gets that. Then you say a coach and they go, oh, is it like a soccer coach? Or what? And it's like, oh, okay, this is not quite the same response I'm used to. Right, or even if you get to life coach. Oh, man. And there's, yeah, I don't, I don't I mean, use the L word. I know. You just hang your head and shake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So I want to get into the uh, mission stuff and the, the moonshot stuff because it's so interesting. And our theme this month is you know, creating a mission that really pulls you forward. And when I thought about that, I thought, you, you know, Jen's the expert on this. is the only person I want to talk to about this. And... I guess to start it off, you know, why should somebody have a mission for, say, the freelancer or entrepreneur with just one or two team members? Why is having a big mission important? So I think of there being sort of three things that most people are really after uh, when it comes to their professional work. They're looking for wealth, they're looking for reputation, and they're looking for impact. And it's actually the rare person that has all three of those things. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, right? In, in any job that you've had, <laughs> you might have had a great impact and not made a lot of money. You might have had even a great reputation and not made a lot of money. That's actually a ton of people in academia. Right. 
you might have a ton of money and, you know, be selling paperbacks. Mm. So it's actually the rare person that has all three. And what I realized is that having a mission or a moonshot is the way to get all three of those things. Mm. And it propels you in a way that is astounding. And, and I think you know this story, right? When I first heard the concept about moonshots, I read Peter Diamandis' book called Bold. Is that where the moonshot concept comes from, Peter Diamandis? No, the moonshot concept, I mean, frankly, comes from John F. Kennedy, right? I mean, it was literally putting Trying a man... to get to the moon. Mm. Then Google picked up that concept for their X Factory. And, and this term's been around, but they were the ones who really popularized right. it. And they were the ones saying, like, look, we want to take on the world's greatest challenges and then create businesses around them. And then Peter wrote the book that made that really popular. And he took a slightly different angle to it and was talking about exponential technologies, right? So a moonshot was how do you create an exponential business by incorporating these exponential technologies that are becoming available? And what I thought was really interesting, I read Peter's book. I was actually not interested in the exponential technologies that he talked about. I thought, hmm. I know all these and I don't want to do them, but how can I do this anyway? Like I still want a moonshot. Like I'm, I'm really interested in big challenges. And so I started asking myself if I could solve any problem that I wanted to in the world, what would that be? I said, I have to back up because I didn't think about this at first for myself. I thought about it for my clients. Mm. And so I went to my clients who I already had and who had not signed up for moonshots and I just said, hey, would you be interested in trying this? Like, you know, I'm always going back to my experimental human subjects. Yeah. Right? So like, not, not sure of the value of it, not sure what it's going to add, but let's try this and see what comes out of it. Right. It was amazing. It was so freaking amazing that after the first few, I said to my husband, like, we need moonshots. Like, we, we have to have them. <laughs> we need because- moonshots at the house. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, um, in fact, I just read a blog post as I told you that, um, and I, one of the lines I put in there, like the family that does moonshots together is really going to test their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially if there's two moonshots under one roof. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that I would recommend that, but from <laughs> so a what, professional What were some context, of the ones just, you said, you know, you started off with a few of the clients. What were some of the moonshots? Just examples, if you can say some of those. Yeah, I'll have to be a little careful here. So I apologize for um, being a little vague. But there was a woman who came to me who was an academic researcher. And um, she was really good. Uh, She was a political scientist. But uh, she'd sort of stalled in her career. And what we realized was holding her back was a couple of things. One was just funding. But the other piece was translating what she did into actual policy and having a pathway to do that. And so what we came up with for her was to create a center around her particular topic that pulled together sort of a dream team of different disciplines that allowed her to make that transition. And her center would then be a thought leader for um, making public policy in this area. And at the time, I, I, what I'd love to do is like do a two-day um, intensive with somebody to come up with their moonshot. And at the end of it, she was breathless. And she said, Jen, this is amazing. And it's impossible. Like, <laughs> I love it. And, and that's just not going to happen. Like I've even tried for some things like that and, and I didn't get them. And I was like, look, it's a five-year goal. <laughs> you know, let's just see how far we can get. 
And um, in nine That's probably months, one of the definitions of a moonshot is you have to go, huh, there's no chance they can do this. I love it yeah. and it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's impossible. So you, in some ways it's so big, it sort of takes the pressure off. Mm. Have you felt this at times? Like you wanted to do something that's so crazy, you're fairly certain it won't work. And so therefore there's like, who cares if you don't do it because you knew you couldn't. I haven't experienced that, but I'm curious to, yeah. Yeah, or even, um, I don't know, for me, this has shown up a number of different times where I want to do something really big. Sometimes I try it and it does fail. Hmm. And the failure is such a gift because I lose all my fear about it. I'm like, oh, and that actually wasn't that bad. And then go on to do it again. And it just like goes like gangbusters. This is your gift. Cause I like, I like, <laughs> I like that you say like, you know, oh, have you ever felt that? Like that's a natural thing that people go through, but a lot of people will be devastated by failure. But that's, I think that's a testament to who you are as a person is how you look at failure. And maybe it is a science kind of experiment thing where that's just an I- outcome. I, this is a big thing I work with all my clients on is experimental mindset. Mm. Everything's an experiment. So there's no success or failure. There's only data and growth. Brilliant. And, and, um, and, and frankly, right, if you think about it, the stories that we love to tell, the ones that we laugh at, you know, the ones you're going to tell at a party, they're your failures. Always, yeah. Always, right? <laughs> They make a great story. So that's another thing that I often tell myself too when I'm in the midst of a failure is, God, this is going to make such a great story. Yeah. Right? Like when I get past this failure and then it works, this part is going to be the best part of the story. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because right? if everything you did worked, it would be really boring. Totally. And you would, there would be no sense of fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. So for her, she was just like, Great, Jen. Love it. Not possible. Impossible. Right. And all she really wanted was, she was so overwhelmed. She was like, I just want to cut my to-do list. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm just dying. I'm like, don't worry. Your moonshot does that too, because most of what you're doing will have no impact on creating the center. So we can just stop doing that. That's when she got really scared. She was like, are you trying to kill my career? Like, I can't just stop doing all these things. It's like, let's, let's experiment, right? Just stop doing them and see what happens. And the answer was nothing. Nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. Off <Often> the way. <laughs> yeah. That, that's fascinating though. Like that's uh, cause it's, you know, what do you do when you can't solve a problem? Make it bigger, you know, that theory. Yes. So when yes. you have this big moonshot or this big mission, that's something unexpected that it clears the way it gets rid of all the non-essential things. Right. It becomes so obvious that you are wasting your time on things that will never move the needle, but make you feel busy. And I I think this whole thing about how people are feeling more and more overwhelmed and busy is because they don't have something big that focuses their efforts. They don't have something big that focuses their efforts. Yeah. Right. Because there's lots to do, but what... Yeah, there's always plenty to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a way in our society that we can feel validated or we can feel. Right. Right. I think the other piece of this too that was very present for me at the time was, um, so I had just had my best year ever financially as a coach, had totally exceeded my expectations. And so the natural response for someone like me is, great, I'd like to double that next year. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like, 
So now I know that's possible. Let's double it. And the more I sat with that, the more hollow it felt. I was like, what am I going to do? Just keep making more money? Like what for? Mm. And that's when I got on this concept of I'm not willing to keep sacrificing the impact piece for the wealth and reputation piece, which is where I've always concentrated my efforts. And again, everybody's a little different. There are people who concentrate on the impact and neglect the wealth and reputation or, or whatever combination of those you want. And I think for me, it was that sense of, I'm just not willing to make that trade-off anymore. Mm. And so what, I don't want to be poor, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like you said, you know, the moonshot brings wealth with impact and reputation. And so what is the, the, the path you take to find your own moonshot? Is it if, if we sort of tear your moonshot down to the parts? Yeah, so I think I mentioned, so I asked myself that question, you know, if I could solve any problem in the world, what would it be? And, and I was surprised that I had an answer. So for someone, right, when, when the question was, what do I want to do when I leave the military? I don't know. No idea. No clue. But when I asked myself that question, what problem would I like to solve in the world? I knew the answer. Mm. And it was, I want to really help people prepare for valuable, meaningful work in the age of artificial intelligence and automation. Um, and, and along with that, right, that age of artificial intelligence and automation is not just that computers are taking our work or changing the nature of our work, but the world is becoming increasingly dynamic and unpredictable. So we sort of have this perfect storm of conditions for which humans are not uniquely suited. Our environment is, is changing rapidly. And human evolution typically takes a long time. And I want to accelerate that process. Mm-hmm. And it, when I found that, I was like, there's nothing else is important. Like, that's what I need to do. And I don't know how that's to great. do it. Yeah. I, I, and it was, you know, I say that to people, and you may even be thinking in this moment, like, sounds a little vague, Jen. Like, could you? <laughs> yeah. And it still is, right? It, it's still. Intentionally vague. It's still intentionally vague. And so I think you already know, I've spent the last year researching, interviewing, writing my way to clarity, trying little things out and being told, no, it's not going to work. And really trying to figure out what are some interesting questions I can ask in this topical area and who can I get to help me? Because the other piece of a moonshot is that it's so big, you can't do it by yourself. Mm. And so for the overachievers of the world, that is a difficult transition, right? You're used to being the star. You're, I'm the savior or whatever, right? And you can't do that with something that's a moonshot. And this is the, big, the, the thing that surprised me the most was how much you have to stay in defining the problem. And this is something that you push over and over and over again is don't, it's not about finding the solution. It's, you know, 90% about defining the problem. And like yep. you said, you've been working on this for over a year and it's still, you know, a little bit vague and we're still not exactly sure what the problem is we're solving. We know there is a, an issue, but what is it? Right. And this goes to the difference between complicated problems and complex problems. So complicated problems are knowable and generally predictable. So it's typically an engineering problem, right? Maybe very, very difficult, 
And ironically, the original moonshot is an example of a complicated problem. You know, I've got all sorts of physics problems and I've you know, got to figure out how to support human life. And then I've got to make all of those systems work together. But we all agree on the rules of space and we know when a man has actually landed on the moon. We all agree on the endpoint. A complex problem is largely unknowable and unpredictable. So it's a, it's a system that is constantly evolving and changing. And we don't agree on the rules of the system. And we often don't agree on the endpoint that we're trying to get to. And in fact, the endpoint's not stable, right? So unlike the man on the moon, we know when we've gotten there, you know, let's suppose I say, oh, I want to create world peace. Well, I could create world peace for a moment in time, but it's not stable. Yeah, the, the thought of, you know, the, thinking about Syria and Iraq and governments and what are you, and that feels complex. Right. And so this was another huge realization is I've never worked on a complex problem in my life. Hmm. Right. Actually. You're, you're classically trained to work on complicated problems. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> like, wow. I used to joke. There's no worse preparation for becoming an entrepreneur than being a military scientist, <laughs> right? Because it's all about procedures, you know, and, and following the rules. And there's really no worse preparation for taking on moonshots than being a military scientist. Yeah. I've been completely trained on complicated problems. And so it makes my brain hurt to try and do this. And so, but the nice thing about that with that realization is that every time I would go to that place of I'm inadequate, this is impossible, I don't have the solution, I would say, and that's as it should be. Mm. That's the sign I'm on the right track. And the truth is that there aren't many people right now, I hope to change this, who are willing to sit in that place for a long period of time and stick with it. Mm. And how do you stick with it? Like, I, you know, I'm thinking that you keep coming back to that original thought of, well, this is the way to wealth, reputation and impact. And this is the way to make life worthwhile. This is what makes everything clear. So as complex as this is and as challenging as this is, this is still the answer. Yeah, I think some of it is one just, I care so much about this issue. Um, yeah, that's the variable, isn't it? Like if you do this right, you're getting somebody to the most impactful topic that they've come up with of what they want to influence in the world. Yeah, I care so much. I love work. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a happy, committed workaholic. And I think that's because I do work that I really do love, you know, fire in the belly aside. And I want that for everybody else because I know what that can provide done right. Mm. And I think this is a historic moment to provide that food to people. Because in the past, we had all this work that frankly was not interesting, was not challenging, was dangerous, right? There were all sorts of jobs, but somebody needed to do them, right? So we came up with incentives to make people do work that they didn't want to do. And it has not been until this moment, I mean, how lucky are we to be in this moment? when that might change. Yeah, I mean, I read uh, a statistic or someone told me last week that by 2027, there'll be more freelancers in America than employees. Could be. One of the things I am also telling people is that you should just throw all the predictions out the window. We really don't know. <laughs> it's so rapidly changing. It's so rapidly changing. And I think it's actually it's one of the questions I've been playing with that I really love is how do you 
prepare people for the world and, and for their career when you admit that you don't know what's going to happen? If you honestly could say, I have no idea what careers are going to be hot four years from now and what they're going to pay and what computers are going to be able to do and what the mm. demographic changes are. Now what? Just, yeah. How do you prepare people for work when you don't know? Mm. And, and the truth is we've always been really lousy at predictions, but I think we may be getting close to admitting that we don't have a good sense of what's going to happen. Certainly not more than a year out. Yeah. Well, it's just like a winner predictions to start with. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I know the big data people think that, you know, that's going to solve that problem and I'm not convinced. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but hey, I mean, that's the point, right? We can't even predict well about predictions. And can I be so bold as to now ask the opposite question? Yeah. What are your predictions for where this is going to ah, go? Well, so as you know, I'm, I'm pulling together a meeting. So excited about this. So in June, I'm pulling together some amazing people from tech, actually from the arts, from education, um, from business, from the nonprofit world. And the idea is that we're going to really frame this problem together because even spending a year on it, I don't have a good way to wrap my hands around it. And so I thought we really need, and what's interesting, right, is everybody comes at it from their own perspective. And I think it's one of the reasons we haven't made a lot of progress on this issue is it's like the blind man with the elephant, right? Everybody describes their piece of it. So it's an economics problem. No, it's an education problem. No, it's a tying jobs to education problem. There are so many different ways to look at it. So I wanted to bring all those people together. And what we're going to do is framing, but also questioning. And two delicious days brainstorming questions. And, and my belief is that from one or more of those questions, a new entity will be born, whether that's a profit or a nonprofit, I don't know. Very much hoping that I'll pull in some partners from the group of people in that meeting. But even still, I have people that I'm already talking to who, again, have been very inspired by this and are interested in so that's the other thing that people don't understand about moonshots is like, you can't even conceive of the opportunities that can be laid down in front of you when you are bold enough to think this big. Mm. Extraordinary. It's so extraordinary. It really is. And this is why, like, I couldn't believe it when I saw my own clients going through it. I was like, mm. wow, I've never seen anything like that. And then to be experiencing it, which has been also very enlightening because I didn't feel I could continue doing that coaching without doing it myself, which is another thing I think is really important. And is the prize still the goal at the end of it? No. I've finally talked to enough people in prize design. So this was so cool, right? I talked to the guy who Just did for context because we didn't talk about the prize, sorry. You were originally going to set you know, SpaceX-type prize, whoever can solve this problem will get a financial reward. Right. I was going to raise $100 million. Again, who knows how? Like sure. I had, Why not? I had no <laughs> idea how I was going to get $100 million. I don't have it myself. But the idea was $100 million because this problem is so big and it affects so many people. I mean, we're talking about truly exponential, right? This impacts billions of people. Hmm. So there's no way it can be something... Small. Anyway, create a $100 million prize. And I talked to people forever about this idea. And what came back to me, again, going back to that complicated versus complex, was that one, there's no one solution. And I know that. 
there are many different solutions that are going to need to be stitched together here. And two, because the problem is always evolving, there's no real winning. I can't set it up in that context. And I talked to people in prize design. So I got connected to the guy who used to do prize design for the X Prize. Mm -hmm. I got connected to another guy who used to be the fundraiser for the X Prize. And both of them were like, Jen, we've tried. We've tried on this topic. <laughs> it's not a good topic. <laughs> and um, Must have been discouraging. Like, it was really discouraging. And I argued vehemently that they were wrong. <laughs> and I think I'm finally convinced it doesn't mean that the prize will totally go away. We may do a prize for some piece of this. So um, I'm in discussions with people about, you know, maybe this would be an interesting time to experiment with a research-oriented prize. So basically catalyzing the research that needs to happen. Or maybe I go back to my government um, contacts and say, right. hey, yeah. I think this is something the government needs to fund. I'll even oversee the research project. This feeling of one being very open to what could come next and being comfortable with not knowing. Mm. It's so hard because everybody wants to know, what are you doing? Well, I'm talking to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. and I'm working on some ambiguous problems. Yep, and I'm writing a lot. Um, not sharing it with anyone, but, uh, you know, it sounds insane. And, and, and well, that's... Well, it does fill me with optimism, like knowing that you're working on this and knowing that you're going to have two days with all these fantastic minds coming together to work to think deeply about this problem. It, it gives me a sense of optimism, but should we be optimistic about the future? Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know that, I mean, for me, there's no other way to be. And that doesn't mean that I don't ever have moments where I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. You know, like this is just, <laughs> I, I feel those. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I believe that we create the future. So one of the things I tell people is you don't need to predict the future if you can create it. Powerful. Yeah. And, and so I'm optimistic that we will create it because I'm doing it. And I think everyone should do it. And, and ironically, I think moonshots are a big piece of the future of work. So you would say just that, you know, there's a little bit of homework for, for entrepreneurs that are listening, that first place to start is if you could focus on anything, what difference would you want to make in the world? If you could solve any problem, what would you want to solve? any problem, what would you want to solve? Sometimes people get caught up in that. My husband was one of them. <laughs> Love coaching your spouse. Such a so great idea. So much fun. Yeah. Awesome. So another alternative to that is that imagine, you know, I'm your fairy godmother. I can give you one wish. What is it? So for example, for my husband, he didn't want to solve a problem in the world. He just wasn't interested in that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to think he's a little selfish. No. Um, How dare he? <laughs> what he was interested in, as you know, so he was also in the military. He was also a scientist. He's now a singer songwriter. And, when I gave him the, all right, I've got a magic wand. What would you like me to do for you? It was around singing songwriting. It's like, well, I, you know, I forget what his first answer was. It was so lame. It was something like, you know, well, I'd like to have an album or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, lame. no, it's a magic wand. A magic wand. <laughs> anything can happen. Anything can happen. And you're asking for an album? And I mean, that wasn't it. And I've got it written down somewhere because it was so funny. So that's another thing that I think people should realize is that they're going to pick something 
that to them sounds ambitious and it isn't. Mm -hmm. Sounds ambitious to me, but it isn't. It isn't. And even my prize idea, when I first conceived of it, it was a million dollar prize. And it had nothing to do with the future of work. It had to, I was going to write a book about moonshots and I was going to give a million dollar prize to the first person who implemented the ideas. Right. Well, to buy it, but also I really, I think most books don't create the impact that they want to create because people either don't finish them, they don't read them, or they don't implement them. Mm. That's 80%. I remember having a heated discussion about this with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, right, I wanted to incentivize reading it and implementing it. Yeah. So that's where I started. And that was, I, at the time, that felt really novel and a million dollars felt really big and scary. Mm-hmm. I did, also didn't have a million dollars to give to someone. And then it evolved. And, and so, right, I'm, I'm pointing the figure right back at myself when I say you will start with something that feels ambitious and it won't be. Mm. And just be aware of that. Yeah. Well, this is brilliant, Jen. So if someone wants to learn more about this or follow your progress, do you have anything where pe- you can send people at this point? Yes, you can go to my blog, everydaybright.com. I have not written in a year because I have been so scared to tell people about this. It was one thing to like, somehow I finally got over my fear of like talking to some super famous researcher, corporate, like the people I've been talking to blow my mind. And originally that totally scared me too. But I still haven't quite gotten to the point where I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just tell the world what I'm doing. That's Until totally now. Up until now. All 14 people <laughs> in New Zealand know. But I have a blog post written, and it is meant to be the first in a long series um, because I realize that I have to tell people my process. Like, I can't – what my ego wants is to wait until the end and say, Ta-da! I did it. Oh, amazing. It was easy. And no one will be able to replicate that. Yeah. Right? And they'll have a ton of misconceptions about how that worked. So I have to share my process, and it's going to be super messy, and I'm totally scared I'm going to ruin that reputation piece by sharing it. And I care so much I'm going to do it anyway. That's so cool. And it's so cool even just to hear you go through your process now of where it started and then a million dollars and then a book and then a hundred million and then a prize and then back to the drawing board and, you know, just to see how messy it is. It's very messy. And it's, and what's interesting though, right? So to me, it often feels like I'm going in circles, circles that are moving, but circles nonetheless to everybody outside People tell me all the time, it's like you're riding on a rocket ship. It's amazing. And I'm like, really? Um. (laughs) (laughs) But what they see is like, wow, the people you're spending time with now, like you didn't know any of those people a year ago. Like that's amazing. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy. Mm. Yeah. And so it's, it's helpful to share the process for that reason too. I'll tell you another story because I had a client, a potential client, who I pitched a moonshot um, coaching relationship with, and he ultimately said no. Um, but it was curious enough. He comes back to me every now and then, and he says, oh, you know, tell me what you're up to. I just want to know how it's going. And uh, I said, ah, oh, I just met with the former head of global philanthropy for a large corporation, very large, 
And I asked for $100,000 and it was a big deal. Uh, he said no, but he um, liked what I had to say and said we should go to dinner sometime. And if I ever have another one of these meetings, he'll host it for me at his foundation and, and give me some space and some food. And I said, really good, failed, but it's good, right? Seeing my failure as a, as a benefit. And he said, let me get this straight. You just met the former global head of philanthropy for this major corporation. And you asked him for $100,000. And even though he said no, he still wants to have dinner with you and host another event for you. He's like, that's freaking amazing. <laughs> that is a win. It was only from his perspective that I could see what had happened. Mm. You know what I mean? I'd felt down about it until I told him and got his reflection. And then I was like, I'm freaking awesome. <laughs> it didn't feel that way in the moment. Yeah. Just because you didn't make the original go. Right. Yeah. It was a no. And, and frankly, he thought, I think I was a little crazy for asking for $100,000 at this stage. And he was right, by the way. I also, I, well, I told you, right, I got my first sponsor for my meeting. Mm. And the key was to break it into smaller pieces. Because at this stage, that's the only way it's going to work. But I learned that from him. I learned it from that no. Brilliant. And so, Jean, that you're incredibly smart, ambitious, talented, funny. <laughs> that's it i don't have a question <laughs> no. i love it yes. it's just a free compliment i found in the moment <laughs> um is there a dark side to all of this do you have a dark side that you are aware of and how do you embrace it yeah i mean yeah sure um it's a trick question it is a trick question you know, what's um, coming to me is I remember when you and I first met, and I think you didn't like me all that much, actually, because you said something along, just so perfect. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm so not. Um, so I think my dark side is anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety, and I, it can be almost crippling. Mm. Is it um, social anxiety or any anxiety? I just worry a lot. I worry about everything. You know, yeah. my daughter makes fun of me all the time. My capacity to worry about things is large. <laughs> <I'm a bit. laughs> right, so it goes back to that question about being optimistic. I mean, yes, I'm optimistic. And I have days where I'm just like, this is insane. It's not going to work. I'm totally incapable. Yeah, this is, a, this is something that's really fascinating. And I'm, I'm so glad you're willing to be open about this because we have a you know, message stream that we chat with each other on. And like I say, who I know you to be is ambitious and someone that's just overcome problem after problem after problem their whole life and does huge things. And some of the messages you write when you're feeling, you know, a little lack of confidence or you're feeling a bit anxious, I'm like, doesn't she look in the mirror? Like, yeah, doesn't she know who she is? And I regularly go through it. Like, I mean, it's, it's always there in the background mm. and it's draining. I mean, it, I always say it's exhausting being me. Not because I do big things, but because of the anxiety. It's yeah. just constantly kind of gnawing at me. And I think I've got some better strategies for dealing with it. But it's still there. It's still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I've heard Elon Musk talk about this in an interview, something similar, just about feeling fear and feeling, well, it was about feeling fear. Because the, the interviewer said, look, you just have no fear. You keep taking on all these big challenges. He's like, oh, no, <laughs> I regularly <laughs> feel fear. So I think it is, it's just nice to point that out. 
Yeah, and I almost wonder if actually I have a keener sense of fear and that in some respects that drives me. And, and I suspect that what's true is that I rely on that drive, the fear drive, more than I should. Mm. Right? And so you and I have also talked about discipline. And I'm like, why don't people have discipline? <laughs> well, maybe because people don't have the level of anxiety that I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they could feel this amount of worry for the future, maybe that would make them more disciplined. And it's not even just the future. Like, it's just everything. And I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, um, you know, when I was younger, I used to think I was going to die all the time. Hmm. I'd be in the middle of like addressing Christmas cards and I think, ah, if I died now, half the Christmas cards are stamped and addressed. They'll go out. What a bizarre thing to worry about. Yeah. You know, I mean, so when I say I worry about everything, I mean, it's just as shocking the things I worry it's about. It's a lifetime of worry. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think some of that is the trauma of my childhood. I think that's pretty typical. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you, Jen. This has been thank so much you, fun. Nathan. I love it you so much. Fun. I love what you're doing in the world. Uh, I'm your thank biggest you. fan, so keep it up. All right, um, just for you. <laughs> yeah, and for the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so if anyone's curious, or want, I love talking about this. I would love for someone to say, Jen, I saw you on Nathan's show. And I want to do a moonshot and I would write you back and say, totally do it. Like, yes. If they need that encouragement or just that spark to get started, I'm happy to be encourager in chief. Love it. And we'll, uh, maybe we can put your email at the bottom of the show notes so people can reach out to you easily. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much. Mwah. Mwah. Well, there you have it, folks, my conversation with the wonderful Jean Gresham. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Check out Jen's website, everydaybright.com, and Jen Gresham all over Facebook. And as always, I'd love you to rate, review, share anything for this podcast to help us keep growing. And I'll be back next week with episode 53 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life.